This is Soundmaking, a podcast made by Hogan Stenner and myself, Matthew Schlomovitz. Each episode of Soundmaking features a composer or performer discussing the how and why of music they've created. For this episode of Soundmaking, I spoke with the composer and electronic musician John Lidecker, who performs under the name Wobbly. John has made music with some of the most interesting musicians around, such as Matt Moss, Clipping, Negative Land, and Jennifer Walsh, who we featured in an earlier episode. It's a huge pleasure to have John on the show to speak about his new solo album, Popular Monitress. You're going to hear three tracks from that album in this episode. In our chat, John speaks about the source music for each track, pitch tracker technology, and why he thinks pitch tracker technology is interesting. Hi, this is John Lidecker. I perform under the name Wobbly, and I didn't really get to pick that nickname, which is why I guess I can trust it. And I live in San Francisco in the thriving Bay Area electronic music scene. I've always been interested in electronic music, and I've always sort of been in pursuit of a meta music that lets us really understand not only that it's all pretty much electronic music in the age of the speaker and the microphone, but uh, what it is that the medium is really saying to us while we're listening to it and making it. So that was a track called Grossi Polyphony, and um, it's from a recent record that I finished, Popular Monitress. And all the titles on that record are sort of a fantasy football mashup of the names of my favorite composers and their works in the field of generative music, which is sometimes called systems music or algorithmic music. It's essentially a kind of automated music where the composer defines a series of rules, which can then be 
executed by electronic instruments, which then produce the music, hopefully in surprising ways. So the track we just heard, Grossi Polyphony, that's a reference to computer music pioneer Pietro Grossi, who would feed in the entire works of previous composers as data sets and then slightly randomize the outputs, play them at superhuman speeds or average or collage several works at once. And there's your polyphony. He was one of many composers who saw electronic music less as a means by which you could achieve total control over your sound and more of a way to realize music that you'd never heard before or design instruments that instead of commanding, you set in motion and then play along with um, instruments that improvise with you. They follow the rules that you give them, but in ways you might not have imagined yourself. So on my album, Popular Monitress, um, there's a, an algorithm that I call a pitch tracker, and they've been around for about half a century. What they do is they just take any audio signal, digitize it, and then find the most dominant pitch in the signal at any given moment and turn that into a series of notes. Here I am with my iPad right now, and let me um, bring up an app called Sonus G2M and also... Um, a tiny Mellotron app. And now you can hear it turning my speech into a series of notes. It's doing its best, but of course, words have a lot of pitch information. So the algorithm gets easily overwhelmed trying to turn it into a tune. But in really interesting ways. And of course, all you need to do to turn speech really into music is to slow down. Yeah. So about 12 years ago, these pitch trackers showed up as standard features on a lot of audio software platforms. They showed up on iPhones and iPads. That's when I got really into them. I never really took to laptops as performance instruments, but phones, ready to go, drop of a hat, so personal. And the mistakes are sort of key. Their sense of rhythm is so bizarre, and they're often off by a half step. So you've really got to have a high tolerance for dissonances. Most people don't dare to perform with them live because of those uh, those errors. But for me, what's fascinating is how hard you can hear them trying. They're trying so hard to play along with you. You can really hear them listening. So here's a song called Help Desk, which uh, is built around a melody that I wrote in 1994 when I was 24 and working at my first temp job at a corporate help desk. And here's what happened when I took that tune and turned it over to six to 10 pitch trackers.
In the last few years, there's been a lot of music exploring the notion of what corporations have decided to start calling artificial intelligence. These neural nets have been trained on incomprehensibly vast libraries of recorded music, told to look for patterns, and then they basically predict their way to the most likely structure of music based on all the patterns that it finds when it's scouring through all of these recorded waveforms. And the results are fascinating, sound way more like music than we have any right to expect, and I, I've listened to a lot of it. But for me, as fascinating as it is, the real challenge is to find models for interaction, ways of keeping ourselves in the loop. I'm more interested in that than the seemingly corporate drive to use machines to come up more of what we already seem to like. We don't really need more songs by Michael Jackson now that he's dead. It's true that sometimes I do have music as a composer in my head that I want to hear the melody and the chords just pop in. But if I'm being honest, most of the time what I do is kind of a collaboration with the instrument. You go to the piano and you just begin playing and the melody comes out of the playing, especially when you're doing chords and counterpoint. In human history, most compositions were unison lines, monophonic. Counterpoint really only started to develop after the arrival of the technology of sheet music, uh, being able to write down your first thought and then layer on up to the next. Polyphony evolved with the technology of sheet music, which then allowed people to perform increasingly complex music and anything you can hear, you can then grow an instinct for playing and improvising with. But the tools sort of come first. So what are the tools of automated music unlocking for us? So on the one hand, of course, uh, this is pretty conceptual music and probably a little on the pretentious side. But I, I really tried to make this one fun. It's supposed to sound great in and of itself and draw you in the same way any other piece of music does. Ideally, if someone heard this on a playlist, it wouldn't sound like other music and uh, it would make you curious. You'd wonder how it was made, which is why the liner notes are there. Because the way sounds work are always deep. You know, Even the most abstract sounds always exist and they usually exist for a reason. And so they instantly begin to serve as models for the, the modern world that we live in. If we haven't heard something before, well, then we're in the moment. Music that's made with machine listening, it's not even a metaphor. It sounds the way it does because it is capturing something about the world that we're living in. If it sounds fun, then that helps us understand the world in a way that's fun instead of a self-fulfilling prophecy like fear. The other thing I was really trying to do was to make it clear that this is music where humans are still sort of an essential component. You can hear the humans sort of right at the heart of it. If I stop making noises during a uh, performance, then the machine stops singing along, which is important because way too much of the music that's being labeled as AI music, the stuff that's been trained on the vast corpus of human culture and now capable of continuing to produce without any further input from us, that's kind of a corporate model, and um, it's driving way too much of the current conversation about what AI is, and it's also trying to convince us that it's all brand new, that they've patented it, when in fact there's this incredible seven-decade tradition in electronic music dating back to the very beginning of the medium where composers were dealing with the ethical as well as the aesthetics uh, brought out by generative and algorithmic music. 
you've got Lewis and B.B. Barron discovering Norbert Wiener and cybernetics in the late 40s, uh, designing self-oscillating feedback instruments that you, um, you know, interact with instead of command and showing them to their young assistant engineer, David Tudor, who uh, performed live electronic music with Pauline Oliveros and the Sonic Arts Union. You've got European threads like Elian Radig and especially Roland Kane. There's a huge school 70 years old where musicians have been dealing with these issues without fear and making some of the most beautiful music I've really heard. Electronic music isn't just about unheard sounds or making the job of the composer easier. It's about modeling the world we live in. And if you uh, can come up with music that does this in a way that sort of sounds fun, well... I don't think anybody has a tolerance for music that's really escapist anymore or just content to entertain you. But it's more important than ever before that we have something that's meaningful at the same time that it's actually uh, fun. So we'll finish with the track Every Piano, which was me playing one of my human melodies that I recorded on a baby grand at Snow Ghost Studios in Whitefish, Montana. And then I just set the pitch trackers loose on it. And um, I think in some ways, the line between the human melody and what the computers are trying to make of it, I didn't write any of this counterpoint. And a lot of it sounds very counterintuitive and interesting and post-human, even though it's pretty much all kind of a mapped subset of all of the chords that I originally chose. So this is Every Piano. Mm -hmm. 